0: Hey, Church Online family, thanks for joining us today. You know, if you're watching this on April 3rd, uh, I gotta ask you, what What do you think has been the biggest story in the media this past week? Now, most of you have probably answered Will Smith smacking Chris Rock at the Oscars. And I'm sure there were definitely more important things that happened this last week, but that seems to be the story that everyone is talking about. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm probably part of that crowd that would say that if Will Smith hadn't smacked Chris Rock, I wouldn't have even known that the Oscars had happened. And now, that's not to say in any way that my opinion is popular or even the correct one, nor am I saying that I don't enjoy the entertainment that the Oscars are celebrating. I'm just saying I have very little interest in Hollywood culture. And honestly, when something like this happens in my flesh, it's very hard for me to sympathize and for various reasons to sympathize with Hollywood people. Rather, it's much easier uh, for me to look at them with disgust. And today, as we continue in... Mark's gospel, we are going to be introduced to a man with Hollywood status. And as I read his story, I'm disgusted. For example, chapter 6, verse 17 says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. I'm going to stop here for a moment to explain some things. So number one, the Herod in this passage is Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great, and he was the ruler, or if you will, king of a fourth of his father's kingdom, which included Galilee, the northern region of Israel where Jesus grew up. Number two, the John that is spoken of is John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, also known as the prophet of God, who was given the divine responsibility of proclaiming to the world that the Savior had come. Number three, and this is where my disgust starts to come in, is that Herodias, now imagine having that name, and no, that's not the disgusting part, but Herodias used to be the wife of Herod Philip, who was the brother of Herod Antipas. And so the brothers had, are, are, in a sense, they had shared the same wife, and and that's, that's gross. Um, number four, because we're not done yet. History tells us that Herodias didn't just marry both brothers, but both brothers were her biological uncles. Her dad was also her husband's brothers. That's gross. And that's only one verse about this family, and I'm already disgusted. Verse 18, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Again, that's why Herod had John the Baptist arrested. Verse 19, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him he was greatly perplexed and yet he heard him gladly but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee for when Herodias's daughter came in and danced she pleased Herod and his guests and the king said to the girl whatever you wish I will give it to you now somebody say ill and it basically, is, is saying that at Herod's birthday party, Herod, Antipas' niece, but now also stepdaughter, danced, and the sense is provocatively, danced for her dad-uncle, and, and he really, really liked it. And, and that's so gross. Verse 23, And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And When the disciples, that's, that's John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Like I said, when I read this story, I get disgusted. I'm disgusted by the evil. I'm disgusted by the culture. I'm disgusted by the actions. In a very similar way that I can be disgusted by Hollywood or how it influences evil actions and our culture today. And it's hard for me to sympathize with Hollywood and it's hard for me to feel anything but disgust for Herod. But as I was studying this week, God gave me a fresh perspective on this passage. Let me share how I arrived at my new thought uh, in this progression. First off, I was thinking about how, like many in Hollywood, Herod had everything. He had riches, power, and fame, but like many in Hollywood, that wasn't enough. And it's just interesting that many of us think that, hey, if I just had this or if I just had that, then my life would be good and then I will be happy. But imagine if you were part of these kind of people, Hollywood or even Herod, and imagine having everything you ever wanted only to wake up the next morning still depressed, still lonely, and still unsatisfied. Or maybe you don't have to imagine that. Maybe you personally know this feeling, because how many stories do we know of wealthy and famous people being miserable, and even taking their own life, or going crazy, or constantly searching for more and more, whether that's possessions or whether that's even wives, and and that's what I see happening here with Herod. For example, all of Herod's power and, and money and fame, they were legit. Like, they were his. However, historians tell us that Rome was unwilling to give Antipas the official title of king. And because they wouldn't, Herod began to build kind of a fake kingdom. It wasn't enough that he he had everything an official king would have. No, he, he needed more. So he began to refer to himself as king, even though that wasn't his title. And he began to structure his administration after the imperial court, even though he wasn't officially part of it. And even the word executioner that's in verse 27, in the original language, it was the imperial Latin title for that position. Again, this is just reflecting Herod's desire to mimic the Roman way. Herod truly had everything, but he felt he needed more, and his fake imperial lifestyle is proof of that. Additionally, it says that he stole his brother's wife. As king, he could have chosen anyone, but for some reason, he believed that This woman that had already belonged to his brother was going to satisfy him. It didn't matter if it was right or wrong. Herod was desperate for happiness. He needed more. And that need for more included finding pleasure watching his niece dancing in front of him. And his desire for more is further emphasized by his emotional promise to Herodias' daughter, which results in her asking for John the Baptist's head. And he feels so backed into the corner, even even as king, he feels backed into the corner, that, that he believes he must follow through with it, even though he doesn't want to. Why? Well, it's not because he couldn't change his mind. He was the king. But because he couldn't stand the idea of disappointing his peers, Mark 6 says, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And again, as disgusting as all of this is, what I began to see is a desperate and broken man, a man desperately looking for hope everywhere or, or in anything. A man with everything and at the same time nothing. He was empty. King Solomon's words probably summarize his life like when it says in Ecclesiastes, but as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. And I saw this. In our passage, and I started to have compassion on Herod, especially when I read verse 20, which said, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You see, in, in the midst of the disgusting and evil action was, was also a stirring in Herod's soul, that that real hope existed, that true satisfaction was available, and something about John's life and message was connected to finding it. Which is strange because John's message included things like repent. Turn away from your sinful lifestyle. And John even said things like, he must increase, talking about Jesus, but I must decrease. John preached about humility, which was the opposite of Herod's life of getting more. But it was also a message that hope was coming. And that's something that I believe that Herod longed for. I I think that John likely spoke of Jesus to Herod saying, behold, the Lamb of God is coming who, who is going to take away the sin of the world. And when Herod heard about this hope, it pulled on his heartstrings. However, that wasn't the only thing pulling at him. Look again at verse 20. It says, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, look at this, he was greatly perplexed. The word perplexed is defined by one Bible scholar as without resources, being in strengths or being in a difficult situation and not knowing which way to turn. You know, when Herod talked with John, it made him glad. Because despite John calling out his sin, John also brought truth. John also brought hope. And at the same time, Herod felt stuck in his current situation. He, and he's like he, he, he couldn't get out of it. And, and can you can you relate to that kind of battle for your soul? And what was it that caused Herod to feel perplexed? Well, it appears to be, his wife, Herodias, you know, Mark six nineteen says that Herodias hated John, but verse 21 adds, but an opportunity came. And then it goes on to tell the story of how Herodias' daughter strategically got Herod to agree to kill John the Baptist, even though he didn't want to. And what this tells us is that Herodias was plotting behind the scenes this entire time. That was the type of person that she was. She was one who exercised manipulation over people to get what she wanted, even if it destroyed others. And honestly, the spirit of Herodias is still at work in our world today. Ask yourself, have you ever heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, but felt perplexed? like you want to repent, you want to follow Jesus you want to have a new life you want to be forgiven, but you feel stuck, you feel trapped you 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 hear internal or maybe external voices telling you all the reasons why you shouldn't respond to the gospel. you know we we may not have a person like Herodias directly manipulating us but the spirit at work within her, Again, is still at work today. The Apostle Paul once wrote Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news or of the gospel. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. And Paul, talked about Satan's influence on this world again in this way. It says in Ephesians, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, look at this, following the prince of the power of the air, this is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The spirit at work within Herodias was the spirit of darkness. It's Satan and his forces of spiritual darkness at work. And it was active back then, and and it's still active today. And and I, I understand that it can be weird to talk about spiritual forces of darkness, especially to our very scientific culture. But please, don't write off this unseen reality. It is alive and it is very real. And don't underestimate its influence on our culture or its ability to blind us to the truth and hope of God. Because you know what? It's not even like it needs to come across as as a big, scary red devil with a tail and a pitchfork telling us, you got to worship darkness. No, it can be as subtle as peer pressure. Now, we've all experienced the power of peer pressure. We know that it can make us choose unwisely even when we know the right thing to do. And Satan will use this power to strategically destroy us, and and he's good at it. Herod was a king, and he still crumbled under the weight of peer pressure. Look at a few verses we skipped earlier mark 6 14 and 15 says King Herod heard of it for Jesus's name had become known and some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead that is why these miraculous powers are at work at him but others said he is Elijah and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old so and what what did Herod hear about well he heard about all that Jesus and his disciples were doing that the kingdom of God was coming that the 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 preaching of the gospel. He heard about the miracles and the healings. But with that, Herod also heard what his peers and the culture were saying too. And they said that Jesus is actually John the Baptist resurrected, which is why he now has these magical powers. That that was a a, a belief that was held back then. Or that Jesus is Elijah the prophet who is now back from heaven with the ability to do miraculous things. Or Jesus is just uh, like one of the prophets of old that God used to do so many amazing things like, like split the seas. But look at the next verse. Verse 16 says, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so Herod, who has this history of being easily influenced by peer pressure, gives in to one of the popular beliefs about Jesus, but something else is added. He says, whom I beheaded. And I don't want us to miss this because I think it tells us something important. I I believe it reveals just how strategically spiritual darkness manipulates our beliefs, how it just waits for the opportunity to weave all of our mistakes together for our destruction. You see, at this point, I believe we see that Herod is burdened with unbelievable guilt and shame. Because now he believes that John, someone who he respected and who he believed was a true prophet of God, but he also killed, he believes that John is back with these magical powers. And why is John back? Well, one reason why John is back is to get his revenge against Herod. And so here's this king who has everything, yet his soul is completely empty. He's being pulled in a million directions while also feeling completely stuck. He's tried everything, searching for hope, and he finally finds a prophet who has answers, but then he's tricked into killing him. And now here's Jesus who has come offering forgiveness and eternal life, but Herod thinks that Jesus is here To judge him. And when I see Herod through this filter, in many ways, I see us. In his story, I see our story. Like us, Herod is like a sheep without a shepherd, lost and in need of help. And how did Jesus respond to these kind of broken people? Well, Mark six thirty four. I know we're not there yet. It's going to be next week, but it says that he had compassion on them. But Herod thinks that he's not good enough to receive from Jesus. And, 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 and as I think about that, my heart begins to ache for him. And as we close out, I, I want to ask us, you know, what, what do you know about Jesus? I believe many of us think that holy Jesus, and, and, and don't get me wrong, he is holy, but that Jesus is just waiting for the opportunity to stomp you out with his golden boots of fire, like he's mad because you keep messing up, your sin is disgusting, and you can't come to him unless you fix yourself. Or maybe like Herod, you also believe that you're beyond help and that the only thing that awaits you is judgment. You know, if you've ever thought that, Let me tell you, don't believe it, because it's not true. God already knows everything about your life, and he loves you. Your sins are not a surprise to him, even if they are a secret to everyone else. He knows that you're broken and dirty. Psalm 103 says, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, and God knows we can't fix ourselves. He knows that we are perplexed. We're stuck in our sins. But that's why he said, you know what? Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, I I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And it's why the scriptures promise that God will draw me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog where I'm stuck, and he's going to set my feet upon a rock and make my steps secure. He knows that we are sinners like Herod doing gross things. And yet he says, I love you. And if you ask me, I will rescue you. I will heal and restore whatever broken situation you have in your life. You know, Jesus doesn't want to smack us. He's not seeking to judge us. He wants to save us. You know, we all know this verse, John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We've heard that God loves us. We've heard that God wants to save us. But have you ever read the next verse? Because verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know, the mission of Jesus, which is now the mission of the church, that is the followers of Jesus, is not to execute judgment on the sinful world around us. Rather, it's to point to the Savior and give people hope, whether they deserve it or not. To declare to the world, in the words of John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, our this our sins. He takes away our sins. And so this morning, Jesus is inviting you into this great love. He's saying, come to me, all of you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. If you will turn from your sinful lives, no matter how bad that life is, and put your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross for you, he will save you. He will forgive you, and he will make you new. Do you need that today? Because if you do, don't wait. Because what usually happens is the longer we wait, the more likely we believe the spirit of darkness instead of the spirit of God. You know, unfortunately, the story of King Herod doesn't end well. You see, what started off as a broken man who was open to hope became a man who was perplexed and afraid, which soon turned into an angry man that eventually wants to kill Jesus. And it finishes with a man who sees Jesus as a joke. John 3, 19 says, And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We see this in Herod. The longer Herod waited, the more he loved darkness. Don't let that happen to you. If God is stirring in your heart today, if you are open to it today, if you are ready to respond today, then do it. Respond today. Turn from your sin and find hope in Jesus. And if you've already done that, if you're already following Jesus, I have two suggested responses to today's sermon. First off, I want to encourage you to consider an alternative perspective when viewing the broken world around us. Instead of disgust, instead of going around and smacking people with our Christianity, let's have compassion first. People are lost and they're broken and they're looking for hope and they're doing anything, even things that don't make sense, to find it. And number two, there are a lot of hurting and lost people. Therefore, maybe it's time for you, maybe it's time for me to go and tell someone about the hope of Jesus. And so think of someone in your life who you know needs hope. And then pray for them. And pray for God to give you the wisdom and the courage and the right words that you can speak to them. And then finally, go and say whatever God puts on your heart. Maybe it's inviting them to coffee and just showing them the love of God by spending time with them. Or or maybe it's telling them what God has been doing in your life. You know, that's more powerful than you think. And people are drawn to those kinds of stories because it pulls at their heartstrings. Or consider inviting them to church. You know, Easter is a couple weeks away. And even in our very secular culture, we have two days when people are still very open to God. And that is Christmas and Easter. And studies show that more than 60% of people say they would go to church on Easter if a friend or a family member personally invited them. So today, Jesus is offering salvation to everyone. He's offering it to those who personally need it. And he's also wanting to use our lives to offer that salvation to others as well. Let's pray. Father, I am a sinner. Like Herod, I make poor choices. I think I need more than what you give me. I care more about what people say instead of what you say. And so please forgive me. And I thank you that you love me with a love that I don't understand or even deserve. And that love was ultimately shown to me through Jesus who died on a cross for my sins. And so today I put my faith in Jesus uh, to save me from my sins and to save me from my situation, to save me from myself. Help me to live according to this eternal hope. And please use my life to help others to find this hope too. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us for Church Online. If this was your first time, please fill out a Connect card. We would love to uh, say hi to you and send you a gift. Also, if you have a prayer request, would like to know more about the River Church, or if you have decided to follow Jesus today, we want to hear from you. And there's an easy way to do that on our website, riverchurchct.com, or you can text the keyword TRC Connect to 94000. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.